We turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to read the first few verses together this morning. Verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul speaking again says, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said that you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and to arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised, so that it may, not be, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Let's pray together. Father, we come before your holy word. Give thanks that you have given us guidance from heaven. You have given us wisdom from on high. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us everything, given us your very self, laid down your life for us, for your son. We pray, Father, you would give us his mindset, you would give us uh, his servanthood, that you would give us that same love with which he has loved us. Lord, may we demonstrate that love uh, in our faith and in our works. May we heed your word, grasp it, apprehend it for ourselves, and embody it, Lord, as your disciples, as those called by your name, your holy saints, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Given that a number of young people are heading back to school this month, I figured I'd give an educational illustration to begin the day. Set the tone for the passage, if you will. Imagine, if you will, the less than ideal student. Johnny shows up to class late because he missed the bus. He's overly tired because he went to bed late the night before. He can't understand a word of the lecture because he watched TV instead of reading the assigned passages in the textbook. He can't take notes because he didn't bring his pencil and paper to class. He can't share anything with class because he didn't do his homework. In that case, do you think that the teacher is going to be pleased with Johnny? Probably not. On the other hand, Noah shows up to class 10 minutes early gets his desk situated, checks in with the teacher. He easily tracks with the lecture, having read all the material in advance, even asks the teacher a few follow-up questions during class. Not only does he have pen and paper, he has extra pens and paper to hand out to the other students who didn't come prepared. (laughs) He not only has something to contribute to the class, but what he shares actually helps the other students to understand the material better. And because he understands the material so well, he finishes his work early and has opportunity to do extracurricular work as well. Do you think the teacher would be pleased with Noah? What teacher would not be pleased with Noah? Of course, a bunch of other fools in the class will say, that's the brown nose, that's the suck up, that's the teacher's pet. Fools, total fools. 
But let's, let's consider this in the realm of the church. Uh-oh. What type of church member do you think that the Lord would be pleased with? Those who are ready to worship or those who have given very little thought to the preparation at hand? Let me ask you very pointedly. How did you get ready for worship today? Think about it for a minute. As you can imagine, the musicians, the sound team, the pastors, the elders and deacons have to get ready in advance to, to at least lead you, usher you into worship in, in a number of different ways. But how, how did you prepare for worship today? As you can imagine, uh, everybody has a different approach, but did you, did you lay out your clothes in advance, or was it something that you were still putting on your shirt as you came here? Did you make sure to go to bed at a decent time or were you up all night and now you're all groggy and sleepy and can't pay attention during the sermon? Even more than that, are you ready to do the work that God has called you to do on this particular day? Did you hear that question that I just asked? Did you know that you're actually called to do work on this particular day? I, I know we all know that on this day, the Lord's Day, we're to forgo our ordinary work, our vocational work, our school work, or what have you. But why? Why are we to take a day of rest? Not so that we can just sleep all day, but so that we can attend to a different type of work, a type of work that's more glorious than even the work that we do during the rest of the week. How are we to prepare for this type of work? I've said it to you many times before, uh, hopefully you've heard me from before, but in your bulletin, if you open it up, you'll find inside what sometimes people will call the order of service, right? The word that I often use is the word liturgy, the liturgy that's laid out for you in advance. The, the word liturgy, again, comes from the Greek word liturgia, which basically means public service or work. The reason why we give you this is not because you'll know what our work is as the pastors and the musicians and whatever, but so that you'll know what your work is. This is a call to work, a call to service on this particular day. We lay it out for you in advance so that you know what is expected of you to be able to contribute to the worship of God, to contribute to the work of God in that sense. So it's not just for particular paid people or things of that nature. In fact, the whole concept of the Reformation was to reclaim this idea of the priesthood of all believers. And the priesthood of all believers means that everyone is serving God, not just those people that are standing behind the veil, if you will. But every one of us is called to serve God in this particular way, in a lot of different varieties of ways. And that's why we always begin the worship service. You'll, if you remember, Mark began the service by giving us a call to worship. And that call to worship is basically saying, you are being called by God to do work today. You're being called by God to lift up your hearts unto the Lord and to sing with gusto, to, to give him something of yourself and to make a sacrifice of praise for his name. But how can you do that if you're not prepared to sing? How can you do that if you don't even know the words to the song? I'm so glad you asked that question. Huh. Because our music director, Rose, has just put out two Spotify playlists for the church. 
to know every song that we sing. Both the traditional hymns as well as the new songs just came out this week. So glad you asked. So that you can learn these songs at home and continue to practice them. So when we come together, you're ready to sing. You're ready because you know the words, you know the tunes. You're not coming at it for the first time. It's interesting, uh, last night we were down in Brighton and uh, leading a, a worship service, if you will, but basically a concert, a worship service outside in, what's it called, the Amp? A pavilion outside in, in, in the middle of Brighton. And uh, most of us who came were ready to, to do this. But there were other people that just sort of wandered in and sat down and began to sing. And uh, great, that's exciting. But that's not how it should be on Sunday, right? That should be, well, everybody just sort of wanders in. Oh, are we having worship service today? Oh, what are we singing today? What are we doing? It shouldn't be that way. We're actually called to prepare ourselves to give glory to God, to come before our King. We're ready to do that, right? And so one of the ways we do that is not just through the Spotify list, but I don't know if you know this, but there's actually an email list as well, which our administrative assistant, our secretary, Kathy, will send out every week in advance all the scripture readings, all the songs, everything, even with YouTube links to show you how they're sung. Don't know if you know this, but if you haven't received this, you can ask for it so that when you come on Sunday, you're ready. So you don't have to go, I don't know that song. Never heard that one before. Because if you get it in advance, you'll be able to know it in advance. The same way, every week we also have another chain that sends out all the prayer requests in advance so when the elder begins to do his prayer before us you're not clueless as to what he's about to pray for because you know in advance who he's praying for how he's praying etc and then you can also join in that prayer and pray intelligently right so it's the idea of you're, you're prepared to do that the same way again all the scripture passages are sent out way in advance You know what's going to be preached on. You also know what the other scripture passages that are going to be read so that you can meditate upon them in advance and be ready so that you're not hearing them for the first time. Have I told you that I highly recommend the book Pilgrim's Progress? (laughs) I do. You should read it. If you haven't, you should. But I want to recommend a different one this morning, Um, one that um, I haven't recommended from the pulpit often here, only because I think a lot of people don't come from the background that I have come from but want to make sure that you know what a blessing it is to actually read it. And that's, strangely enough, a confession of faith and a set of catechisms. It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechism. Why do I recommend this to you? Because you can benefit from your forefathers from hundreds of years ago who have given great thought and meditation upon the Scripture on how should we as individual Christians, as well as a church, how can we do it better? How can we worship God with all of our heart? How can we prepare ourselves to worship God in a way that would not only do us good, but also be an encouragement to the rest of our brothers and sisters in Christ? So one of the questions in that catechism asks this. It says, what is required of those who hear the word preached? So the implication is that when you come and and you're sitting right now and you're hearing the word preached, I'm not the only one doing work. (laughs) But you actually have to prepare yourself to do work as well, that you're expectantly going to receive the word. In fact, uh, the answer to that question is they ought to diligently give their attention to it, coming prepared to hear it 
and praying in advance that they might receive it as God intended. So they're diligently focusing on what's being said. They're coming prepared to hear it. They're ready. They've done whatever they need to do to get ready to hear the Word of God, meditating upon that Word. And then they're also praying that something something marvelous would happen as the Spirit enables them to receive that Word. Even listening to a sermon is work for some of you much more than others, right? Some of you really have to work at staying awake, really work at paying attention. Some of you might struggle with ADHD and have a hard time. I, I know that when I'm a listener, I have to stay with you because uh, otherwise I'll be tempted to wander off as well. And we, it's a work. It's something that we are diligently have to attend to in that sense. And in the same way with our prayers. When someone is praying up here, it's so easy just to fade away and not pay attention to what they're saying. And then we're not agreeing with them in our prayers. Uh, the scripture, even Second Corinthians says, we're supposed to agree with them by giving our amen to the prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can't do that if we're asleep. <laughs> we can't do that if we're not paying attention. And the same way with our songs and every other aspect of the worship service. The problem is, oftentimes people, the, the believers of God, they're not ready to pray when they come on Sunday. They're not ready to sing. They're not ready to listen. They're not ready to receive the grace of God. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting, even recently, uh, after I switched things up for communion, a, a number of people gave me some feedback and said they really appreciated being able to have um, the Lord's Supper separately, the bread and the wine separately from each other, so they could focus more and, and meditate more, and I certainly appreciate that uh, full, full-heartedly. But at the same time, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a sense in which we ought to come to the Lord's Supper ready to take it, meaning that we've already confessed our sins to God, even before we came to the service that day. We're ready to engage the Lord and recommit ourselves to God, recovenant with God once again. We're ready to meditate. We're ready to do all those things. Again, the Westminster Catechism, there's a question that's asked. It says, how are they to receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to prepare themselves before they come to it? And the answer given is this. They ought to prepare themselves by examining themselves of their being in Christ, of their many sins and failures, of their knowledge of faith, repentance, love to God and neighbor, and of their willingness to forgive those that have wronged them, of their desire for Christ, of their obedience in renewing the exercises of these graces by serious meditation and fervent prayer. Of course, the, the expectation is that this would be done prior to the Lord's Supper itself, hopefully prior to uh, the hour of worship, Uh, You might even say the night before. Well, the average Puritan would actually begin to prepare themselves a week in advance to recommit their lives unto God, to re-receive the grace of God once again. And I don't know if you know this, but this has been our pattern for many years. We let the church know a couple weeks in advance when they're going to have the Lord's Supper. We put it in the bulletin. Why? So that you can prepare. Prepare for this momentous occasion that you would take this seriously. It would not be something we just do just because we do it, you know, in that sense, but that you would take it seriously and, and receive grace from it. So as you know, the Puritans, uh, as the most part, the Puritans were some of the men that helped put together the Westminster Confession of Faith. They would try to set aside the whole day, sanctify the whole day to the Lord. And so they urged Christians, even before the day began, to prepare their hearts with foresight 
with diligence and moderation in everything that they do that they might be fit and ready to worship God on the Lord's day. In fact, and they got all of this from many different scripture passages, but primarily from the one that just says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why the word remember? Because we're prone to forget. We're prone to leave the Lord's day as the last thing that we think about in the week and forget that it's an important day. It's a, it should be the, the highlight of our week. But oftentimes, I, I think sometimes we as Christians forget to prepare. And so we're not ready. And then oftentimes we miss a blessing as a result. Now, if you feel like I've been beating you up this whole time, I really relish this part. It's never a matter of just you should do this. But what a blessing you get from it when you do prepare. And, and what you miss out when you don't. In fact, one, of the, one last uh, of the catechism questions that um, the Westminster divines give us is what should you do after you've taken the Lord's Supper? They ask this question too. And they say, one of the things you should do is you examine yourself again after you've taken and say, well, did I receive the blessing that I ought to have received from this? Or did I not prepare myself well? And then I would urge myself to prepare better next time so that I'm ready to meet with my Savior, ready to engage once again with the covenant that God has given unto me. Uh, and so this leads us particularly into every aspect of worship, but uh, you're wondering if I'm ever going to get to the text that we just read. Uh, here we go. Uh, this leads directly into the passage this morning where Paul's primary concern is that the church in Corinth be ready to give. Be ready to minister to the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Be ready to make a sacrifice of some kind for the sake of the body of Christ. Look in verse 1. Paul says there that it's, it's not necessary for him to inform them once again. He's saying it's superfluous for me to tell you of the need once again of the poor saints in Jerusalem. You're well aware of the situation already. <clears throat> I don't need to tell you once again of this need. And he says, because you've already promised to help with this need. You've already promised to give, to meet this need, and to help your brothers and sisters overseas. Again, they're in Jerusalem, uh, whereas he's writing to the people in Corinth, which is in the area of Greece. The problem is it's been over a year since they made that promise, and yet they still haven't given. They pledged to give to this work, but then they never gave anything. It's interesting the recent court case between two famous actors, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Apparently it had been in the news for months. I didn't pay attention, uh, but I watched something recently that helped me understand a little bit about what the dilemma was that they were going through. But ultimately, if you don't know, you may not even know who that is, but Amber Heard lost the case primarily because of her lack of integrity. One of the main points that the jurors decided to go against her was because of this. She had made an interview on TV, I think somewhere in the Netherlands, in which she said uh, to the public that she had donated all $7 million from her divorce settlement with her husband, Johnny Depp. And yet, the two um, nonprofits that she had supposedly donated this money to, the ACLU and the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, I think, had not received a dime from her. Okay. So the prosecuting attorney began to ask her a couple times. He said, did you donate this money to this and this? $7 million. She says, yes, I did. And then she, she, the uh, uh, prosecuting attorney again asked the question, did you actually give the money to these two things? 
And, and she said, yes, I did. And she's like, do they have the money in their accounts? I don't think so. And she actually came out and she said, well, I'm not lying. I've always used the words pledge and donate synonymously. And so, as you can imagine, there were a number of memes that came out online in which your average Joe who makes less than 30000 a year says, I'm going to donate a million dollars to charities this, this Christmas. Because the word pledge and donation mean the same thing to me, you know, in that regard. Of course, that's not integrity. And that's, in a sense, exactly what Paul's concerned about here with the Corinthians. In their initial excitement, they had made a great pledge of support. And yet they hadn't given a dime. That's not right. And so as a result, Paul is concerned that when he shows up with some of the Macedonians who have already given their monies, and, and they're, all, they're going down, so they're Macedonians in the north, they're coming down to Corinth, and then they're heading east to Jerusalem. So they're going to take all the offerings together and go that way. On the way, the Macedonians are going to see the Corinthians, who had heard that they had given a lot of money, and yet when they arrive, there ain't no money. Paul's going to be humiliated, and so too will the Corinthians be humiliated because the Macedonians thought so highly of them, and now they find out they're a bunch of schmucks. So, the Apostle Paul is trying to avoid this as much as possible, and so he's sending an advance set of men, Titus and a few others, to help prepare the church to get ready to give so that when the Macedonians come and when Paul comes, no one has to have shame-faced uh, reaction to uh, the matter. So, Paul, uh, so wh- why, did, why did this happen this way? Well, Paul had told the Macedonians, so the Philippians, the Thessalonians, the Bereans, he had told the Macedonians of the great exuberance and excitement of the Corinthians to give. That, in turn, challenged the Macedonians so greatly that they begged Paul for the opportunity to give in the same manner. But as I've shared with you a couple weeks ago, those in the north were much poorer than their rich brothers in Corinth. And so they actually, the, the northern brothers had to make many sacrifices, giving up their own necessary goods in order to give to their brothers in Jerusalem. And because they've heard that their rich brothers had given so much. But now it seems it might have been a lie. And so what would the Macedonians think when they show up? I mean, it could, could be a number of things. Either they thought that, that Paul had deceived them in order to get money out of the Macedonians, or perhaps in some way he's forcing the Corinthians to give against their will when they show up, or at the very least that the Macedonians would be, again, just embarrassed by the whole matter. Uh, knowing that the Corinthians didn't live up to that reputation. So Paul's sending this team in advance to make sure that they're ready, ready to give. I think there are three lessons that we can get from this uh, particular passage on giving. First of all, God doesn't want us to give to his kingdom out of guilt or shame or peer pressure. Uh, The very reason why the Apostle Paul is sending this advanced delegation is so that when he comes with the Macedonians, it doesn't appear as if he's forcing them to give. He wants them to give freely, to give from their heart, to give cheerfully, uh, not in some sense of exaction, as he says in this particular text. And it it makes you think of the passage that Mark read earlier uh, from the book of Exodus in which Moses had said, anyone who has some goods that can contribute to this building of the tabernacle 
please do so. And, and as you know, literally, just people were giving gold and bronze and silver and fine linen and, and, and yarn and all sorts of other goods. And they kept giving and they kept giving. And so finally, all of the special workers who had the ability to make these articles and, and make the, the furniture to, to, to fill the tabernacle, they couldn't do their work anymore because they were surrounded by all the stuff that they didn't have room to make the things that they needed to make. And so every one of them stopped their work and went to complain to Moses. Stop this ridiculous mess. And so Moses literally, after the initial command, as Mark had said, is now going to them and said, I don't want any man or woman to give anything else. This is ridiculous. And it literally says in the Scripture, he restrained them from giving. Again, it's the exact opposite of what we see in Macedonia, where Macedonia and these poor brothers in Philippi are begging Paul, please let us give. Please let us sacrifice. Please let us contribute something to this cause. And now, again, these brothers in Jerusalem in the Old Testament are, you know, they're already doing it. Now they're being told not to because they just want to give so cheerfully, so willingly. This, this obviously should be the ideal. Very rarely should a church have to say, guys, please, we're in desperate straits here. We're really low on funds. Can you please help us? It, sh- it shouldn't be that way. But it also shouldn't be we're trusting your arm. You need to give more. I, I've told you a couple times already before. I've, I went to a church when I was in college that made every, could you, I couldn't even imagine doing that here, but Imagine everybody, get, you have to get up out of your seat and parade all of you in a line in front of the church, and they had three people with Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets, you had to throw your money in the bucket. And then you went to sit down, and then they count it, and then round two, everybody get up and go again, put your money in the bucket, and then round three came, and I'm thinking, I ain't got nothing else to give, you know? But, I mean, but really, it's, it's one of those things where it was also sort of shaming you, though, too. You know, it would parade you, and so everybody could see what you gave. It's the exact opposite of what Scripture says. Don't let your left hand see what your right hand's doing. It shouldn't be that way. If someone loves the Lord, they love his kingdom. They love his church. They want to give. So you, you shouldn't have to force someone to give. And so I hope you never sense that from the church. I really do. I love the fact that our offerings are in the back of the church. No one's asking you to put anything into a plate. If you have the heart to give to the Lord's church and to his kingdom, give. If you don't, then don't. No one's going to force you to do otherwise. It's the same way as serving in the church, any role of officer, elder, or deacon in the church. The very first requirement is he who desires this task desires an honorable position. If you don't desire to do it, you're the last person I want to serve as an officer in the church. I don't want you to because you're going to give bad name to the, the work itself because you don't want to do it. That's the first lesson I think we can get from that. The second one is this. God loves when his people are ready to give. Again, going back to this readiness concept. Readiness shows love and respect unto God. Love and respect unto the church. Just as an unprepared student shows disrespect to his teacher, to his classmates, a believer who's unready to give to the Lord and to his brothers shows a lack of love and a lack of interest in the kingdom of God. A student who continually forgets his homework is no different than the believer who continues to forget his brother who's in need, than the brother who continues to forget to, to give an offering un, unto the Lord. He, he just forgets. It shows that his mind is elsewhere. It's not important to him. It's not something that he's, he's prepared to do. It's not something that, that he's looking forward to do. It's something that 
is, oh, I, I, I should do that. It should never always be should. <laughs> it's just because he's ready. He wants to. He's eager. He's zealous. We just had a, um, the communicants class for the, uh, some of the teens this morning, and we're talking about the attitude with which we give, the attitude with which we serve in the church. And, and Paul keeps using these words like cheerfully, zealously, without grumbling, without complaint, always giving ourselves, our hearts unto God and to his church. That's the way it's meant to be. Again, that doesn't just refer to money, but every aspect of our time, our talents, helping our brothers in need, helping to build up the church of Christ. The growing believer comes to church on Sunday ready, ready to worship, ready to contribute, ready to serve, ready to love, ready to pray, ready to help, ready to encourage, ready to meet new people and to greet them, ready to give and not just receive. I've said this a number of times in the past as well. I always hear people complain when they think a church is not very friendly. And they'll say something like, well, no one really came up to greet me. No one really asked me any questions. No one expressed any interest in me. And what do you think I asked them in return? Did you greet anybody? Did you show any interest in anybody? Did you do anything? And you're, you're expecting the rest of us to do that for you? I I think I've also shared to you, I'm an introvert by nature. It's not something that comes easily to me either. But I can tell you, most of the time, because my heart's ready. I come in, I'm ready to greet. I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to encourage. But there are times, I have to admit, there are times where my heart's not ready, and I've pulled into the parking lot and wanted to pull out immediately. And I've sat in my car, and I've had to pray and sit there and say, what is wrong with you? Why? Why am I so distant? Why am I so cold-hearted? Why, why am I not ready to do this? That's because my heart's elsewhere, you see. Uh, the problem is I think sometimes you can have people that come to church week after week and their heart's elsewhere. Yeah? It's okay. Sometimes we are weak and we're still supposed to come to church. Don't not come because you feel weak that day. The rest of us can help build you up, edify you. But there ought to be times where you're able to edify the rest of us too. It should be mutual, you see. That's the way God has designed the church, that when we're weak, others are strong, and vice versa. But Paul particularly commends those who are rich to do good. First Timothy 6.18 says he commends them, do good to be rich in good works and always be ready to share out of your abundance. That applies to the materially rich, but it also applies to the spiritually rich. You should be ready to share of that blessing that God has given you. It's not just for you. It's so that you would be able to be a blessing to others. Again, from the very beginning, Abraham was called not just to be blessed, but what? To be a blessing. If you're blessed, whether it's spiritually, materially, or otherwise, you have a responsibility, a stewardship of that blessing to give blessing in return to others. And to do that, you have to be ready. Now, some of you might be thinking, I'm making too much of this readiness thing. That uh, maybe readiness sounds good in the worldly realm, but doesn't really sound like a Christian term. Do you, do you ever hear a whole lot of sermons on ready? I want you to think of this one passage. I think that might help you to get what my point is. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. John hears this loud voice from a great crowd in heaven. And they're gathered around the throne of God, and he hears them saying this, Let us rejoice and exult and give 
God the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself what? Ready. What does that mean? Well, in the next verse, he describes this beautiful bride who's dressed in this glorious array. And you're thinking, okay, well, she got herself ready. She, she beautified herself up. Right? She put on her makeup. She got the dress ready, the whole thing. But he says very clearly in that passage, what he means by that is through her good works, she has made herself beautiful. She's ready to meet her king because she has been ready all the days of her life to serve her king. So when she finally sees him, she's ready. But anyone who's not ready on a regular basis, they come to church, they're not ready, they're, they're not ready to serve, they're not ready to give, they're not ready to encourage, whether here or whether elsewhere, they're not really ready to meet the king either. You see, our preparation here makes us prepared there. The bride makes herself ready to meet her king. Then finally, third, our giving is not only for God's glory and for the material benefit of our brothers and sisters in need, it is also for their spiritual encouragement. Uh, notice again how the Macedonians were encouraged to give graciously when they had heard how the Corinthians were so willing to give themselves. And then vice versa, Paul encouraged the Corinthians to give based on what the Macedonians had done sacrificially in giving. Uh, put it this way. You know the Holy Spirit is at work, right? Do you often see how he's at work? We, we often don't understand exactly how he's doing, how he motivates us, how he gives us the desire and the ability to do the good works that we're called to. But I can tell you this. One thing we can see very clearly, when the Holy Spirit works through another believer, immediately you recognize, wow, I'm encouraged. I'm edified by what I've just seen and heard. I mean, think of it this way. When you see another believer in church and, 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 and you see the greatness of their faith and they're talking of their great faith in the promises of God. Does that not encourage you? In the same way, when you, when you see another brother or sister in Christ and, and, and they're sharing with you their opportunity to witness to someone and how fun it was, how glorious it was and sometimes painful, does that not encourage you to want to go witness to when you see your brothers and sisters in Christ, give of their time and their talents. Give of their gifts and even of their money unto the Lord. Does that not encourage you to learn to make similar sacrifices? It's a, it's a mutual beneficiality in the church. It's the way, in fact, it's one of the reasons why we're drawn together, right? If we're, if we're, if we're meant to do this all by ourselves, we don't need one another. There's, there's no reason for all of you to be in the room. Let's just zoom in, have church at home. It's what we can do, right? But you're, you're, hearing some, uh, you're hearing some encouragement from me, but there, well, how many other people are in this room? God doesn't just use me. He equips me to equip you to continue to, to share that blessing with each other. And when we do that, the church grows. On the other hand, he says those who don't do that, they're immature in their faith. They, they, they're just tossed back and forth by the waves of culture. They have no grounding whatsoever. We need one another, serving one another, encouraging one another in the faith. When that happens, what a, what a beautiful thing it is. Uh, when other believers see your faith in action, it encourages them. When they can palpably feel your love for Christ, it makes them want Christ's love more. 
But if they don't feel that, it just feels like another dead day at church. You know? So does it really matter whether or not you're ready? When you're ready and the Spirit's moving in you, you have great ability to encourage another brother and sister in Christ. When you're not ready, you have great ability to discourage a brother or sister in Christ because they see your apathy. They see your lackadaisical attempts. They see that it's not really important to you. I say even more so, and let me, I, want to, I want to talk directly to parents at this point. When a child sees that church is not important to you, it will not be important to them. Hear me. Hear me well. If a child sees that church is the last thing on your list, it will be the last thing on their list. And then the next generation, your grandchildren, will walk away from the faith. I have seen it so many times. And it's so disheartening. Over and over and over again, it happens. Your lack of preparedness, your lack of love for the Lord, leads to their lack of love for the Lord. And then the next, it's gone. It's absolutely gone. Now, I'm not saying it's all dependent upon you. The Spirit works in ways we can't understand. He's like the wind. He comes when and where he pleases. But what you do counts. Your love for Christ counts. So go love Christ. It's not that easy. Uh, again, I'm not trying just to make this something about you got to go work harder. But what I am saying is this is where the role of examination comes in. This is the purpose of the Lord's Supper. This is the purpose for why we come. We're examining our hearts. What's wrong with me? Why don't I love Christ in this way? Why don't I want to be in church? Why, why, why is it so not important to me? Why don't I want to serve? If I love Christ and I love his church, don't I want to do these things? Think about that. It makes a world of a difference in the life of the church. Not only that, but when the church sees you excited about the Lord, it spreads. The rest of the believers are excited. And then guess what else happens? When the church is excited, the world around us begins to notice too. And they sit up, they take notice, and then they finally say, we know they're Christians by their love, by their enthusiasm, by their excitement for the Lord, for his church. In fact, the last thing I'll leave you with this. You know what the word enthusiasm means? Enthusiastic? Literally, you break down the word. It means in God. Someone is filled with the Spirit of God. In theos. In God. You're enthusiastic. You're filled with God. And as a result, people see that. And it, it causes miracles to happen. People come to faith in Christ. People are edified. They're encouraged. They want to be in Christ. They want to know him. They want to love him. They want to share the gifts that they have with others. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we know that all of us have fallen so short of your glory. We know that we all have failed a thousand different ways. We know that even as I speak very directly at times and, and uh, offer some correction and rebuke as well as some encouragement, Lord, we pray that none of us would be defeated by that. None of us would take that and, and, uh, and walk away. Lord, help us in the midst of our weakness, help us in the midst of our failure and our sins.
Lord, to start again. Today is a new day of your mercy. Lord, help us to love you this day. Help us to see even through the failures and the mistakes and the sins that we've committed. Lord, help us to know that there's still much room for hope, much room for growth, much much more of the Spirit that can be given to us. Lord, we pray, give us your Spirit. Give us more of, of you. Fill us that we would be enthusiastic saints in this day and age and for the generations to come, we pray.